Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we are reading and discussing week 11 of Lovable's companion book, which is entitled Choosing Which Voices to Listen to Around You. That's probably my least favorite title of any of the chapters in the companion book. Um, And this is probably one of my favorite episodes. I can't wait, wait for you to hear this. There's so much good stuff in here. Basically, last week, we began to focus specifically on our experience of shame, this voice inside of us that tells us that we're not good enough, we're not worthy of love and belonging, that we uh, that there's something fundamentally broken at the center of us that will prevent us from, from living a beautiful story. And this week, we're going to talk about what to do when that voice doesn't just come from inside of us, but from the people around us as well. Um, before we get into it, though, remember these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday, well, almost every Wednesday morning um, at uh, 9 o'clock Central Time or Chicago Time. My Facebook page is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, and you can go there at that time to join us. Um, as I said, almost every week. We we're, took a couple weeks off over the holidays. We'll be recording again on uh, January 10th. Um, so if you want to be kept up to date on when those uh, weeks are that occasionally we don't record, you can make sure you're signed up for my newsletter. Go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. And in the right sidebar, you can sign up for the newsletter. You'll also get in that weekly newsletter um, a link to my bi-weekly blog post. You'll, when you sign up, you'll get a free copy of The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down, and you'll get a free sample of my book, Lovable. So lots of good stuff there. Go ahead and, and, and sign up. We'd love to have you You join us. And speaking of Lovable, if you'd like to pick up a copy of it for yourself or someone else, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available in paperback and digital and audio wherever books are sold. So you can pick up a copy from your favorite place to buy books. All right, there's a lot of good stuff in this week's episode. I'm excited to get going, so let's get into it. Uh, And as always, thanks for tuning in. Hello, Facebook Live. Thanks for joining us to record the 12th episode of the Lovable Podcast and to discuss week 11 of Lovable's companion book, The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. This week's chapter is entitled choosing which voices to listen to around you. Last week, we began to focus specifically on our experience of shame as we experience it inside of us as a voice within us. And this week, we're going to talk about what to do when we hear that voice on the outside of us as well, coming from the people around us. Before we do so, though, let's spend a few minutes touching base about how this year of listening, loving, and living is going for everyone. I realize we're more now, we're more than halfway through these months of listening, which are focused on recognizing our true self and embracing our worthiness. And I'm curious to hear, what are some of the things you're noticing? As we discussed last week, are there any firsts that are beginning to happen for you? What is helping the most? Um, Or in contrast, where do you find yourself most stuck and struggling the most? I think that conversation will be as helpful to to people as 
as conversations about success. So um, let's check in on, on those things and then we'll get into this week's, uh, this week's chapter. And while you're thinking about that, I thought what I'd do is I just recap last week's exercise and share some personal examples uh, of how looking at life through the lens of story and redemption has um, shaped my life in some, I think, small uh, ways, but I think powerful ways. And that's one of the things we talked about last week is as you begin to want to try to tell a different story with your life, one not limited by shame, well, shame can creep right back in really quickly and say, well, to tell a good story with your life, it has to be grand and epic and something that would impress everybody. And in fact, that's 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 not going to redeem anything. That's going to add more, more shame. So I thought I'd share some ways, just small ways, in which um, looking at life through the lens of story and redemption has uh, set, set my life on a different course and, and our family's life. Um, so one of the principles of story is that if you have a negative turn in, your, in a story, if, you're, if the main character experiences a setback, something painful, some conflict, some road bump, something that gets in the way of them getting to where they want to go, um, then for the, for the story to be completely satisfying by its conclusion, um, that, that negative turn, that setback, needs to be redeemed in some way. If you get to the end of a story and you're like, wow, that horrible thing happened to them and it never ended up serving a purpose. It didn't, it didn't do anything to, to transform the character or change the character. It, it's like this, it's this loose end hanging there and that's very unsatisfying. Um, and so it was around 2009 or 2010, I think, that, that my wife and I were actually start, starting to get into this idea of story. And we started to ask ourselves, what, um, what are the loose ends in our life? What are the negative turns that are that are unredeemed? And for instance, one of them, a very powerful one, was that my at that time my wife's my wife's biological father passed away when she was three. It was a devastating loss for her. Um, she had not been allowed to go to the funeral, and by the time we you know two thousand nine two thousand ten, she's thirty three thirty four years old. She had never visited his grave. And that was one of those things where we looked at her story and said, that's, that's not the way a good story ends. How, how, does, it, how does it end differently from here? Um, and so the next summer, what we did was we went with um, her, I'll probably get a little emotional. We went with her, her, her father's grandkids, our kids, and we, um, we, we found his gravesite after some searching. Um, and we spent some time clearing away the debris and cutting back grass and ground that had grown over his um, his tombstone and, um, and we just, we spent some time in that space and that's become actually a ritual for us in the summers is that we go and we sort of clean up his gravesite. Um, a way that, a way that a, a loose end in her story, um, was redeemed in a small way, but I think a powerful way. Around the same time we were, um, uh, we were struggling to sell a townhome that we'd had to move out of because we got pregnant with an unplanned third child, who's my daughter, Caitlin. And uh, we only had two bedrooms in the place. And so we moved out, but we couldn't sell the place. And it was like, this is a really crummy story right now. How can we make it a better story? How can we redeem this story a little bit? And we thought, well, what if we, what if we rent it out? What if we leased out the townhome to someone who wouldn't normally be able to afford um, a place to live like this? And, uh, and so that's what, we, that's what we did with it for about two years. 
um, until we eventually sold it. And so again, um, how do we redeem this, this crummy part of our story? How do we do something different with it in a way that is, it feels meaningful and satisfying? Um, and then really my writing is, is, is also the, the conclusion to the, the question, um, you've always been terrified of telling people <laughs> how you feel, what you think, um, ruffling any feathers, being honest about your thoughts. You love writing. Um, in a good story, how, do, how does this get better? Um, how, does that, how, does, uh, how does this loose end get tied up? And, uh, and so starting to write publicly was part of that for me too. So I throw some, I throw some ideas out there and I'm going to scroll back to pick up comments. But I just want to sort of um, continue to stimulate our thinking in this regard. The changes that we make in our life um, as, we, as we seek to live a more beautiful story, one not limited by our shame, one that redeems difficult things that have gone on in the past, does not need to be grand and epic. It can be as simple as, um, as visiting a gravesite. It can be as simple as not making as much as losing a little money, <laughs> frankly, on renting a townhome or writing a blog post for the first time. Um, those are powerful ways to redeem a story, but they're small and they're subtle and they're ordinary too. So um, I throw those out there as a way to continue to stimulate thinking in this regard. I didn't plan on this sort of synchronicity, but it's interesting to be talking about messages of shame that we can take, we tend to take in from people around us. We're gonna be talking about that this week. And here we are sort of on the verge of the holidays and going back home, <laughs> oftentimes to be with some of the people that were responsible for some of those messages of shame, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Gosh, and so here we are heading into that. Now this episode won't air until January 3rd, after we are pretty much on the other side of that. Um, but that's one of the things as a therapist that I experience uh, come January, is that people are struggling with sort of the aftermath of returning to a place where they've experienced a lot of shame, a lot of sense that they're not good enough and disappointing the people that they love the most and so on and so forth. And, um, and that once again, for another year, they weren't able to sort of um, decide which of those messages get into them and which they keep out. Um, and too many got in once again and you know, stirred up some of that old shame. And, uh, and so here we are, here we are on the verge of, of going into that season and, um, and we're talking about that very issue. Deb F. writes, I think that is why it is tough for some of us to be with our families. Yeah, um, in the therapeutic process, there's often comes a point for me where I'll recommend actually someone, could you go back and stay with your family for a weekend? Um, do they still live in the same house? Could you stay in your same childhood bedroom? Um, now that you're beginning to develop a sense that you have some control over what gets in and what, and what doesn't, what would it look like to sort of immerse yourself in that experience again and, uh, and with a more discerning, observing eye, um, understand some of the messages that communi get communicated in that place? Um, so that's a, that can be a powerful healing experience when you're ready for it, but most of us aren't in that place when we go home for the holidays. It's just not the way it is, so it can be a very difficult experience. Mike writes, consistently asking myself, what would it look like if I am okay, just as I am? How would I act? How would I think? How would I feel? Mike, there, there's one of my one of my favorite things about this podcast so far is is um, is the very specific suggestions that some people have offered that I think can be helpful to a lot of people, and it, to me that's that's one of them. <laughs> to ask ourselves, what would it look like if I am okay just as I am? How would I act right now? 
How would I think? How would I feel? Um, that in and of itself could be a practice for anybody listening, and I hope people will consider it. And I think I alluded to it earlier for me. It would be, um, I would I would just, I would say more of what's on my mind um, and remember that uh, in doing so, I don't have to do so defensively or aggressively um, to feel safe in sharing, but I can do so vulnerably and honestly. I, I think I'd just not keep quite so much in. Mike adds, then once I get the answer on what the true self is, what the true self would think, say, do, feel, I act on that, acting as if the true self is true. I love that, Mike, because that, that totally captures one of the central themes of this entire year, which is that we are becoming what we already are, right? You're acting as if it is true because it is true and you're learning to become, to live your way into that thing which is already true about you. I, I love that. It's a paradox, but it is the truest thing um, about us. And, uh, and so I appreciate you framing it that way. Mike writes, like you, I assert myself more. Set firmer boundaries and let people know when they've crossed them. My speech is simpler, less trying to say things nicely and more focused on being honest, is I'm guessing how that you're, how you're, you're finishing that, Mike. Yeah, um, you know, I, I suppose there's a reason you and I resonate with each other because that's when I ask those questions and I act differently, I think that's it too. Um, is, I mean, to be aggressive is to disrespect someone else in setting your own boundaries. Uh, to be assertive is to respect someone else in, in setting your own boundaries. And, uh, and and when I ask those questions, I think, too, that's where I end up, is um, being more assertive, having boundaries, not being so concerned. If I've set them assertively, which is respectfully, not being so concerned with how other people respond to that. Deb writes, as Brene Brown says, strong back, soft front, soft words. Yeah, is that is that in her most recent book, Braving the Wilderness? Um, strong back, soft front, soft words. I think that's I think that's in Braving the Wilderness. She probably says it a lot of places, but um, I love that too. Uh, she also um, she also in Braving the Wilderness talks about um, the first time she was on Oprah, and then finding out that Maya Angelou was sitting in the green room watching her, and then meeting Maya Angelou after the the uh, the taping, and what what Maya Angelou said to her. Um, in that moment was don't be moved, hold your ground, stand your ground, <laughs> be assertive about your boundaries. Um, and so I think more and more um, as we embrace our true self, I think that is what starts to happen. Um, but we find a way to do that with a soft front and soft words, with vulnerability, with tenderness, with kindness, um, recognizing that and as we move into these months of belonging, that's what belonging is. It's a place where everyone can have their own boundaries and yet everyone else's boundaries are respected and working through the complicated, messy process of figuring out how to, how to do that together. Um, that's what belonging looks like. Heather writes, shame to have lots and lots of foot in mouth moments. <laughs> yeah. There's a phrase that my therapist said to me at one point that was, so I must've been ready to hear it. It must've been sort of a game changer. I probably said it on here before, but I would say something like that to him. And he would say, yeah, you do have a lot of foot and mouth moments, just about as much as the rest of us. <laughs> and he would just equalize it all. You know, that he knew that my shame was all about comparing, right? It's all about, am I doing better than someone else? Cause my worth is dependent upon my performance being better than someone else or me being better than someone else. And it was always about, for him, leveling the playing field and saying, we're all human, we're all pretty much ordinary. Um, and that just steals so much of the, 
of the fuel, you know, from our shame is to be able to embrace that. So yeah, Heather, foot and mouth moments about as much as the rest of us. <laughs> Julie writes, I'm still fighting the good fight on the job hunting front, weighing possible narratives against some inner sense of self. Yeah, Julie, I, um, thanks for sharing that. And for those of you who don't know, Julie's sort of She's embarked upon this year of listening, loving, and living in the midst of a job search um, that has been frustrating at times. And uh, Julie, this this week might be specifically specifically for you um, because there are all sorts of ways to interpret a job search that isn't going well. Um, and as you're as you're pointing out, the the task is to interpret it through the lens of our true self, through the lens of our worthiness, um, and not overinterpret. Um, some of the feedback that we're getting or misinterpret it. Um, and so that's actually what we're going to talk about today. So I hope, I hope it's helpful in some ways uh, and encourages and strengthens you in the process. Julie writes, it's a largely a numbers game, less to do with me and more with circumstances. My job is to keep showing up. You got it. Keep showing up. And it still gets old at times. Julie, one of the one of the things that uh, and Heather, you talked about this last week in your own job application process that the fear didn't go away, um, but you showed up anyways and you asked the tough question. And here you are, Julie, also saying this week, you know, this doesn't get any less old. It doesn't get any less hard. Um, it doesn't get any easier. But my job is to show up. My job is to ask the question. My job is to to take the chance um, and. When I'm talking to people who are listening to this podcast, that's what they're that's what they're saying is is one of the most helpful things is to hear from all of you that this isn't about feeling great and then living. It's about living fully in the midst of not feeling great and living your way into feeling better um, by showing up. So Julie, thank you for reminding us of that and modeling it for us, really. Yeah, so let's um let's let's transition into the the reading for this week and and we'll just sort of see where that this week's reading takes the discussion from here um and uh and as i've been doing before i get into the the reading from the companion book um i want to i want to situate the companion book back within um I, I i was told i was told by several people this week essentially if i had to sum it up um i don't feel like it's a companion book it's a standalone book but it's a parallel sort of book you know the things that are happening in the companion book parallel the uh, the progression of lovable and so I want to draw the parallel back to to lovable and then um, and then we'll get into this week's reading so um, what I'm going to read from is the first chapter of lovable um, titled the original wound it starts on page 18 and uh, and ends on page 20 this excerpt so I'll go ahead and read that now for millennia the word shame has connoted dishonor and disrepute still today we tend to think of shame as a rare complicated and disgraceful emotion but shame is not rare. It is actually quite common, even universal. And shame is not terribly complicated either. Shame is simply the belief that we are not enough. It is the core conviction that we are without sufficient value, that we have somehow fallen short of this thing called worthiness. This belief then takes many forms, including thoughts and feelings, and it is most palpable as a haunting whisper issuing from the shadowy corners of our mind, telling us life is a test that we're failing and a competition that we're losing. Usually the whisper has been there so long we don't experience it as a deceptive intruder distorting our reality. Instead, we experience it as our trusted narrator, the familiar voice in our head telling us the truth about who we are. So when it tells us we are less than enough, we believe it. However, at the center of every human being is a spark of God, a smoldering ember of the divine, and regardless of the mess we make of things, 
the wreck we make of our lives, our insecurities and doubts and fears and mistakes and transgressions, nothing can extinguish it. We are, each of us, a uniquely embodied soul made in the image of God, and that part of us cannot be unmade. The dictionary defines worthy as having adequate value. As the living, breathing bearers of the eternal, transcendent, and limitless love that spun the planets and hung the stars, we qualify. And then some. The foundational truth of our humanity is that we are worthy enough to participate in this cosmic dance, as author and Trappist monk Thomas Merton calls it. It is this truth that our shame relentlessly calls into question. Shame whispers in all of us, and it usually begins whispering early, which is why I call it our original wound. Most of us first experience it sometime in toddlerhood, before we're old enough to decide what we let into our tender hearts and what we keep out. If we were mistreated or abused in our early years, the doubts about our worthiness are likely to become central to our identity. We don't know who we are without them. But even if we lived a fairy tale life, and some of us do, we are never completely spared from the effects of shame because somewhere along the way, someone whose opinion mattered to us failed to reflect the worthiness within us. For instance, I'd like to believe middle school is entirely responsible for Aiden beginning to forget who he is. But I know, despite my best efforts, I've played a part in wounding him too. He is a free spirit, much more like his mother than like me. He is always forgetting something or misplacing something or leaving something unfinished. And I regularly express, in both subtle and not so subtle ways, my disappointment that he is not as meticulous as me. Disappointment is the most common delivery system for shame, like a Trojan horse you roll into a kid's heart. When night falls, shame climbs out. I love my son but I've unintentionally rolled Trojan horses into his heart. When a parent or a friend or anyone we look to for our sense of identity expresses disappointment with who we are, the Trojan horse rolls in. None of us emerge from childhood unscathed. So that's the context for this week's reading. And even more than focusing on the fact that none of us emerge from childhood untouched by shame, um, I think what we want to start focusing on is that few of us emerge from childhood with a sense that we can have control over what shame gets in and what messages we keep out, that we can have some say in that. Um, we just learn very early on that it's all, it sort of all gets in, and we don't develop that ability to have emotional boundaries about what gets in and what doesn't. So that's where we're sort of shifting this week, and uh, uh, we'll get into this week's reading now. Week 11, choosing which voices to listen to around you. People before points. It's something I say to my kids, a reminder that people are more important than victories. Sometimes the kids remember, sometimes they don't. To be honest, sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't. The sun was slipping behind the trees and our breath was becoming visible in the twilight when my oldest son forgot. A game of football with the neighborhood kids and one young lady dropped one too many passes and Aiden said one too many critical things and her eyes spilled tears and she sprinted for home. Points before people. Whoops. I encouraged Aiden to follow her and offer an apology. I admired his courage as he followed her home and knocked on her door. Her father answered. I watched Aiden's lips move, and I watched a darkness pass over the father's face before he closed the door. I don't really blame the father. If some punk kid makes my daughter cry over a football game, I'm likely to circle the wagons too. Yet Aiden returned, tears now streaking his face, and he said, Daddy, I apologize, and he didn't say anything. He just looked at me like I was a monster. And then, choking on the question, am I a monster, Daddy? Being a kid stinks. You're new in the world, 
life is confusing and it seems like the big people hold the instruction manual about how to put your life and yourself together. As a vulnerable little one, it's terrifying to feel like you're on your own. So children will listen to any big voice that gives them definition and direction, even the cruelest ones. And then sometime around the fourth grade, peers join the chorus too. They start commenting on anything and everything about everyone. In elementary school, opinions multiply like rodents. So we build walls to hide ourselves. But the truth is, they're usually like cheap motel walls, and the voices continue to seep through and every opinion continues to matter. Maybe growing up and growing healthy is as simple as discerning which voices to allow in and learning how to keep the rest of the voices out. Recently, I was browsing Amazon for a new iPod speaker dock. I found a dock with 662 ratings, out of which 537 ratings were four or five stars. Yet 44 people had given it a one-star rating. I had already decided to purchase the speaker, but out of curiosity, I began to read some of the one-star reviews. While most people love the product, these 44 people hated it. One reviewer complained angrily that there was a 1 inch gap between two of the parts. He admitted it was difficult to see the gap and it didn't impact the functioning of the speaker, but as an engineer it offended his sensibilities. As I read his diatribe, it occurred to me, some of the most opinionated reviews revealed far more about the reviewer than they did about the product being reviewed. And I wondered, could that also be true about the people who review us? Imagine, you're walking down the street and you say hello to the first passerby and they return the greeting. Then you say hello to the next person who walks by and they growl at you and put their head down. The third passerby responds with a joyous good morning and the fourth responds by crossing to the other side of the street. What does that series of interactions tell us about who we are? Absolutely nothing. At best, it tells us something about the people responding to us. Most of us are like that speaker doc on Amazon. We have a 1 32nd inch gap in our character and we'll never project the music of life perfectly. Anyone and everyone can review us. We can't stop it from happening, but we can decide how to respond when it does happen. If we constantly listen to the voices in the world and the voices of shame in our head, reminding us of our imperfections, we'll sit on the shelf unopened and all sorts of beautiful potential will get wasted. Are you ready to play the music you were created to play, regardless of the one-star reviews? If so, hitting the play button on your truest self will probably begin by hitting the mute button on someone else. Then, as the din of voices settles down, you'll begin to notice another voice growing louder within you, a voice of grace calling you beloved, reminding you that you are not a product to be reviewed, but a soul to be renewed. Julie writes, hmm, shame, the authority we let people have over us, and on the flip side, the authority they presume to have over us. Yes. Julie, that's a that's a really thought-provoking way to think about it. That um, that to speak into someone's life with shame presumes a sense of authority over them, and it's an authority that we can choose to take back or can choose to give to them. I think that's sort of the message of this reading. I, it's a really thoughtful way to think about it. Mike writes, "Well, we shouldn't overlook that they are driven by their shame too, and ignorant of their shame." Right. So one of the one of the more transformative principles um, and Richard Rohr says it all the time. I, I'm not sure if it's his thing or if he got it from someone else. Um, he also says all wisdom is borrowed. Um, so we're all sort of borrowing from everybody. Um, if you don't transform your shame, you'll transmit it. Um, and so when the, it is always the case that when someone is doing something to shame us, 
that they are essentially taking their own shame, probably at some level denying it, that, that it's there, and then e sort of ejecting it, pushing it, pushing it onto us, passing it onto us. And, and that's why it has to be up to us to be aware of that and to decide whether or not we receive it. And if someone's doing that, they're already at some level pretty miserable. So coming back at them aggressively, shaming them, returning the shame, I mean, unfortunately that kind of escalation is how so much interaction works in the world. But this isn't about that. This isn't about retaliating. This is simply about deciding whether or not we let it in. Um, and that's what we want to focus on more today. Deb F. writes, I love the story about the teacher telling kids to close the lids on their hearts, to be selective about what you let in. Um, I'm 64 and I just learned that. <laughs> I know, right? How, like, what an advantage our kids are at, that they're learning that in, in fourth grade instead of at age 64. Um, yeah, Deb, that's a, a story that I tell in Lovable, I think in Act 2, um, but we're going to actually touch on it a little bit in today's exercise as well. You know, this idea that... Um, uh, well, I guess to, to, to put it right up front, um, that I heard about a teacher in a neighboring school district who had told her kids that, um, and actually our kids' teachers did this in a, in a slightly different form this year, but basically you're like a bucket and uh, you have a lid on your bucket. And, uh, and some people try to put good things in your bucket and some people try to put bad things in your bucket. Um, and when I first heard that, as I say in Lovable, I, I sort of laughed because I just pictured like every kid in the class running to the teacher all day saying, you know, Johnny tried to put something bad in my bucket. And I thought, how's that going to help? And then she said, but that lid on your bucket, you're in control of it. And if someone tries to put something bad in your bucket, you can close the lid. And when you teach kids that early on, they get it. They actually get it. Um, it's harder for us adults to relearn it after not having known it for, for a long time. But that's a great metaphor for what we're talking about here today. How do I begin to close the lid on my bucket so that my inner space is more silent and I can begin to listen for a better voice and a different voice within? Marv writes, does shame impede our ability to enter into our pain? It seems that avoidance of pain may be a deeper issue. Um, it, you know, it's a great, gosh, Marv, that's a great question. Holy cow. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't. I certainly don't know the right answer. I'm gonna. I'll give you the answer that comes to mind. How's that? And uh, and we can go from there, or we can um, maybe develop a whole new podcast around that question. But the um, uh, I'd say it's. I'd say two things come to mind. Number one is that shame is part of our pain, um, and it also impedes our ability. So this is the way that I think of it. Shame is our original wound. It's our original pain. Um, then we develop all sorts of other secondary forms of pain in reaction to it. Fear, um, sadness, uh, anger, uh, and so on and so forth. And that what we're needing to do is get through all those secondary kinds of pain and then and, and approach our original pain, which is our shame, but shame does this funny thing, which it tells you that if you have pain, there's something wrong with you, you're broken, you need to hide it, you need to not go towards your pain, you can't handle it, and so on and so forth. So in a way, shame's sort of self-protective. It, it sends you running in the other direction from it when what you're needing to do is move through all of that pain and right into it and through it. Um, so yeah, somehow it, it is our pain, and it is also the thing impeding our ability to move towards our pain and, and, and towards it. Um, so... That's my, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your reaction to that, Marv. We can sort of go back and forth on that or anybody else too. Julie writes, regarding Marv, shame sometimes tells us we deserve what we get. 
So true. Well, you deserve for those horrible things to happen. You deserve for the person to say that. Yeah, and the, the voice of shame inside of us and the voices of shame outside of us start to work in tandem, don't they? Um, so even very subtly shaming things that come from outside start to stir up the voice of shame within that then says, yep, you deserve that. That's exactly the truth. And they start to work together. Um, and um, begin, beginning to... Uh, um, to end that partnership, <laughs> that that horrible partnership is a big part of this, is, is having the boundaries to say, oh, I've already got enough shame in here. Don't need any more. <laughs> you get to keep yours, and I'm just going to learn how to work through and deal with mine for now. You guys don't get to keep working together like this. So I'm going to give you an example of a very common situation that I find myself in um, when it comes to this. So I can remember, this happens commonly. I remember one post in particular because I actually remember I can I can picture myself sort of like feeling the shame of a particular response to one of my blog posts. Um, and the response to this blog post was, what do you know about pain and shame? You should have gone through what I went through. Um, why don't you just be quiet? That was an email that someone sent me. Um, that very same day I got uh, an email that basically said, you know, your writing seems to have lost its edge. You, are you writing scared? What's, what's wrong with you that you're not, you're not uh, writing the way that you used to? <laughs> and then on that very same day, in response to that very same blog post, I received a comment. This is your best post yet. <laughs> um, exactly what I needed to hear. I'm printing this out and putting it on my wall or something to that effect. And so, you know, it was one of those days where it's like, it's like I put an ink blot out into the world, and everyone got to to project their own reactions onto it, and uh, that's humbling in a way, um, and it's it's a little scary in a way to know that when you when you put yourself out there, you're going to get all sorts of different reviews, and, uh, and and learning how to to digest those reviews and which which to let in and which not is is really the skill that we need to develop in order to keep putting ourselves out there, keep showing up. Shelley writes, yes, I have had similar responses from others. When I was accepted into an MFT program, I began to hear encouraging words from some, but some were not as encouraging. Yeah, this happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, as soon as you take a step out and do something that attracts any kind of attention, you start to discover that you get all sorts of different reviews. Um, and, uh, and so the impulse then, right, is to stop attracting attention, to quit doing things that, that other people notice, to get small, to stay small. Um, and uh, that goes back to what Marv was saying about the ego reaction. The ego says, oh, hide, hide everything that's true about you, all the pain that you feel, all the insecurity, all the, and get, get all that buried away so that no one can, can comment on it. Um, that's the ego's job. So um, to continue to put ourselves out there, even when we receive these, all these, these different kinds of reviews, is important to develop a sense of um, that we get to decide what gets in and gets out, stays out. Heather writes, shame is the cousin to my fear. I have so much I want to do, but the shame fear holds me back. So then I do nothing. Yeah, I think Heather, you and I were tracking on exactly the same page there, that that, that, that is the end result oftentimes of shame is that it, it limits our willingness to do things because we just don't want to endure the reviews that we might get. Um, and so, so how do we continue to, to show up 
and maintain a sense of, um, of, of separateness from those reviews. Again, maybe observation of those reviews. Okay. Um, actually, I was at a book signing with St Stephen King recently, and someone asked him about how he handles the critics. And he said, you know what, 99% of critics have something useful to say. Um, I don't like the way they say it sometimes, um, but they're smart people and I can learn from them. I can learn from that criticism. And then 1% of them just need to buzz off, <laughs> essentially is what he said. Um, but I like that because he's relating to the reviews not from a place of shame, but from a place of worthiness and going, oh, your review is not a critique of my entire being. Um, it's just feedback about how I'm doing and I can take some of that and sift it through my true self and decide how much I want to keep and how much I want to let go of. So, um, I, to me, that was a, that's a beautiful model of what it looks like to have a, a healthy relationship to the people who are, are reviewing us. Okay. So let's continue this discussion by transitioning into this week's practice. Week 11 practice. This week, we are going to start choosing which reviews to listen to. Now that we have become more aware of the voice of shame within us, we want to start discerning the voices of shame around us. Let's begin by identifying one voice around you that triggers the voice of shame within you. This, might, this voice might speak in any form. You might hear it in magazine covers featuring bodies you will never have. It might be the voice of friends who subtly use you to feel better about themselves. It might be the voice of bosses or coworkers or parents or spouses. It might be the voices in your Facebook feed which post by post unintentionally imply that everyone else has a happier life than you do. Now for a week, if you can, eliminate this voice from your life or from your heart. Stay off of Facebook, for instance, or throw away all your magazines. However, if you must hear this voice, for instance, if you cannot avoid a boss or a spouse, choose not to listen to it. This, of course, is far easier said than done. Here are some options. One. Imagine picking up a remote control and pressing the mute button. Or imagine picking up a set of headphones and placing them over your ears to block out the voice. Two, if the voice isn't coming from a person but from a magazine or a hurtful email or a trolling comment on the internet, for instance, imagine a whiteboard with a message written on it and visualize yourself simply wiping it away. Three, visualize your heart as an open bucket. If someone tries to insert something you don't want into your heart, picture yourself quietly putting a lid down on the bucket. Whatever method you choose, in the silence created by the muting of the voices of shame around you, in the coming weeks you will begin to listen for another voice within you, the voice that reminds you that you are anything but a monster. So that's this week's exercise, and even as I read it, Okay, I'm, I do this stuff all the time, and I see the benefits of doing it. But even as I read it, the objection that sort of arises within me is like, really? Like imagining a remote and a whiteboard and a, like a bucket or a trash can? Really, this is going to increase my ability to handle negative criticism and shame from people around me. Um, and it's you know, something that we've acknowledged in recent weeks on this podcast is that it's oftentimes very difficult to draw a one-to-one -one correlation between any given practice and some of the change and growth and transformation that happens. Um, but what I can assure you is that if you do this regularly and intentionally, if you're looking for opportunities where like, oh wow, I'm taking on shame from that action. I'm taking on shame from that comment, from that experience. What can I do right now to visualize um, not, not allowing that comment to be written on me or not allowing that comment to, to get into me? If you do that regularly, something does begin to shift within you. And I'll give you an example of this. I think I wrote about this in Lovable. Um, 
I'd been practicing essentially this, this idea for about a year, a year of practicing it before I had a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, something, something has changed. <laughs> I got into an interaction with someone who was actually really pretty intentionally shaming me. Uh, and again, I think I wrote about this in Lovable. And suddenly I just had this thought in my head. And the thought was, sorry, the shame bank is closed. We're not taking any more deposits today. <laughs> it was just like, whoa, where did, where did that ability, truly it's not getting in for the first time, it's not getting in. It wasn't to say I didn't have shame, I still had plenty that I was dealing with inside of me, but I wasn't taking on any more deposits. Um, and it, it really changed the interaction um, from there with that person, and it, certainly it changed, I mean, it dramatically changed the trajectory of my day and, and my um, experiences going forward. Um, and so, so you practice these things, and you don't know exactly um, how the shift is going to happen, when the shift is going to happen, and then suddenly, one day out of nowhere, a thought is in your head. Sorry, the shame bank is closed. No more deposits today. Um, and and that's the that's the task of growing and transforming. <laughs> it's uh, it is not a straight line. <laughs> so I wanted to share that as an encouragement because I just I have that reaction when I read this. Like really, come on, that that seems pretty hokey, um, but it can be pretty powerful over time. Julie writes, I think the thing about a practice like this is that success is always intermittent, but the batting average goes up with practice. Julie, uh, you just said what I've been trying to say <laughs> uh, far more succinctly and better. Um, yes, the success or yeah, that, that moment where something healthier happens in you, they are intermittent. There will be days where you feel like you're going backwards. Um, but over and over, overall, your average, your batting average is going up. Such a good way to say it. Deb F writes, I love the remote one. I'm going to use that one. I get a lot of rerun comments from family over the holidays. Take, take crazy somewhere else. We're all full up here. There it is. I had someone say to me once when the shift was happening for them, this was a client, um, relating an experience that had happened to them so many times before and that we'd, we'd worked through so many times and and uh, but clearly something was different as it was being related and i said so what like what next and she goes hmm, like nothing next i just all i thought was well, you can't fix crazy <laughs> and that was it um there didn't need to be any conflict uh, between people there didn't need to be any conflict within her um that that emotional boundary had just been built in a healthy way um so yeah um there is going to be a lot of reruns these holidays and uh and maybe if uh you know, if you came across a rerun on television you didn't want to watch again, you wouldn't watch it, right? You'd pick up the remote and turn it. So Deb F, take that remote to the holidays um, and blessings in doing so. Heather writes, I have to admit, instead of listening, I just avoid. Boy, Heather, thanks for that. Thanks for, thanks for saying that. This is one of those situations where it might be the case that just uh, ignoring is an effective strategy for you and one that doesn't need to be changed. Um, I do think for some people sort of dissociating from shameful experiences um, is uh, an, a strategy that was effective at a young age, you know, like when you don't really have any control, you feel like you don't have any control over this, just disconnecting um, sort of from emotions altogether, ignoring, avoiding can be a very healthy strategy when you're young, but then over time what it does is it prevents the, the growth that could arise from engaging in that moment and actively setting a boundary and saying, nope, that's that's not gonna get in today. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things for you, you to decide as you're sort of um, 
sort of working through things. Is this, is this the, this is the way I want, a good way to keep handling it? Or could, could I be benefiting even, even more from handling it in a different way? Mike writes, for me, it's simply, maybe I'm wrong how I'm looking at this. That maybe is powerful for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I love that, Mike. It reminds me of, it reminds me of that, that, you know, the, the wisdom of the Stephen, the Stephen King response, you know, it comes from a deep sense of worthiness. Um, it comes from, um, not our shame that says, oh, well, if you're critiquing me, then I'm all bad, but huh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something useful to take away from this. Um, but, but to, to be able to have that reaction, we do have to be rooted in a deep sense of worthiness that, uh, people's negative reviews, we can sort of filter through, right? And decide which parts of it we keep and which parts we don't. Um, but man, what a beautiful place to get to. Susan writes, I would think that this exercise would also apply to messages of shame we give ourselves. Yeah, yeah, Susan, I think so. Um, one, of the, one of the most powerful things I learned in my own therapy um, was that if I, you know, it's sort of like if shame is, is water, you know, that is seeping into your, your boat, right? And you're trying to bail. <laughs> um, it's important to plug the leaks um, because you, you can be bailing and then you're getting, you're, you're, you're taking on more and more water, more and more shame. And so these two things do go in tandem, right? It's, I, I can't, I'm not taking on any more shame. I'm not taking on any new stuff. My boat is full enough and I've got some bailing to do to, to relieve myself of some of it. And so I can't be taking on any new stuff right now. So I think that that's, that was the reason for situating this practice at this point in the year was we're now shifting into dealing with that, that voice of shame inside. And it is really helpful um, to not be taking on any more shame from other people as we're doing that. So um, I, think, I think you're exactly right. And I appreciate that, that, uh, that nuance to it. Yeah, Heather writes, I, it's avoiding those people in my life, but sometimes we're stuck with them. Yeah, and that's, that's a great example, Heather, of where, you know, the thing that worked in most situations, oh, I just avoid people. Now we're stuck with some of those people and the avoidance mechanism isn't working anymore. And, uh, and so we need to l learn a new skill and an, a new ability to, to handle the shame coming from those people when we can't, can't leave them, can't depart, can't be away from them. Um, and, uh, yeah, such an important, important and tough skill to learn. Polly writes, I wanted to avoid a problem person over the holiday, but I could just keep the lid to my bucket in my hand ready to close it at any time. I'm going to think about that. Thanks. Um, yeah, and you know, it's important to, it's important also to acknowledge that sometimes as we begin to, to settle into our, our true self and embrace our worthiness, um, that one of the things that happens is we realize it's, it's actually okay to choose who I spend the holidays with. Um, I don't, I don't need to do this thing just because I'm supposed to, um, sometimes it's okay to, to, and, and you see that oftentimes as a sense of worthiness develops, traditions change, you know? Um, so that, that, I don't want to, I don't want to say that that's not a good thing. Um, but I also do want to acknowledge that, uh, to be able to be with people who you want to avoid and to be able to be with them and still stay rooted in your sense of worthiness. Um, and stay rooted in a sense that you get to have some say over what gets in, that, that can be a game changer as well. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, considering both and making a, a wise decision about which to do. Thank you all for another great discussion. Uh, we're going to wrap things up here this week. Next time, we're going to start focusing more explicitly on this other voice I keep referring to, which I'm calling sometimes the better voice or the other voice or 
today I started to refer to it more explicitly as the voice of grace. So next, uh, next time we meet, it'll be week 12 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled simply the voice of grace. Until then, remember, you get to decide what gets into you and what stays out. Thanks again for joining us on The Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Cause you-